Well, good morning. So we are um, coming into this passage today or these passages today where there's just a lot to, to process through, but I'm hoping that as we spend the next um, few moments that we can continue to learn from, from this book the wisdom that comes from it. Now, I suspect that many of you, you know, as Christians, we try to find ways to recharge ourselves, try to find ways to, to encounter God, to, uh, to be filled with hope. And so a lot of times what happens is sometimes we find ourselves going to mission trips, to conferences, to workshops, you know, as a way to kind of enrich our souls, as a way to awaken, you know, our slumber. Many times we try to go to these places to experience spiritual growth. And then, but for some of us, perhaps, you know, we may not go to conferences or workshops or any of that thing. Some of us may come to church and hoping to experience the same thing, hoping to experience growth, renewal, hope. You know, after a long, hard week, you know, we just want to come into worship and experience God. And we can experience God in powerful ways through the preaching of the word, through the songs we sung, through the fellowship of the believers. But sometimes these mountaintops experiences that we have from conferences, from being at church, you know, sometimes they don't always translate the next day when we go back to the world. Sometimes after experiencing the highs of the mountaintops, we go back to the world, we go back into the valley, the valley of, of darkness, valley of frustrations and anger, valley of, of just, you know, a, a place where, where we find ourselves restless, find ourselves struggling. And so you see at the beginning of chapter 5, the preacher, you know, took us to the house of God to worship, to hear him, to hear from him, to experience the fear of God. And then in, in chapter 5, verse 7, then, you know, as we see, after he lays the foundation for, for us, he tells us to fear him, fear God, revere him, honor him as his people. And even as we heed this command, as I said, it does not guarantee that life will turn out the way we want when we enter the world again, when we come out, you know, of Sunday morning to the next day even as we heed his command to fear him you know sometimes we find ourselves being surrounded by darkness by temptations by suffering by all kinds of wickedness but yet despite of this you know he calls us to surround ourselves in the light of god and he goes on to unpack his point in these surrounding chapters so as as we as charity have just read through a whole lot of Scripture, I want us to see a few points that I'm about to make here. You know, first, the preacher wants us to see the brokenness around us, around us. And next, he wants us to learn to make the most of God's gift. And finally, he calls us to strive to live with wisdom. And so first, see the brokenness around us. And as we quickly, as the preacher transitions from, from the house of God quickly to the world. He tells us one of the clear things here, that the love of money is a big problem in our world. It brings all kinds of pain 
and sufferings and distractions in our lives. And it is no wonder that perhaps, you know, a lot of us, after leaving the church, after going back to the world, we find ourselves struggling, find ourselves distracted, find ourselves hard to relate to God because of all the distractions around us, the pressure of wealth. And Jesus himself warns against the deceitfulness of wealth and money in the parable of sower. You remember Jesus described the third seed which falls among the thorns. All right, what happens? So it quickly grew, but the thorns were surrounding it and quickly choked the seed. And just as believers who allow themselves to be distracted by wealth, you know, finding themselves wanting to worship God, but at the same time being surrounded by wealth, being distracted by it, we too will be choked up and become unfruitful. But here the preacher tells us even more, the deceitful of wealth manifests itself in different forms in our world today. And the preacher wants us to be aware of it, to be aware of the evil that surrounds us and not to be caught off guard. See for yourself what is happening outside the house of God in the world. So taking the believers out of the house of God into the world, the preacher lets them know that there's injustices that happens all around. You know, Richard just prayed a great prayer of the injustices that's happening in China. But here in this passage, you know, there are injustices that are happening too because of wealth and money. The poor is being oppressed by the wealthy. They're taken advantage of, exploited, violated in all kinds of ways. But the root of injustices uh, goes even deeper as, as we see the brokenness and corruption of the system. The system itself is broken and corrupted and evil. You know, layers upon layers of government officials are taking advantage of the system to advantage themselves at the expense of the poor. Those sworn to protect and to uphold justice have misused their responsibility. Now, where is the justice to it all? The preacher tells us that there is none. Notice, there seems to be none in verse 8, and he says that there's no end to the corruption, and worse still, there is nothing that can be done about it. And it's clearly shocking to see the extent of such wickedness. And the preacher wants us to feel it, feel the, the brokenness around us, feel the evil around us, Experience it, feel it, do not be alarmed, do not be surprised that this is happening. Empathize with the situation as one, perhaps who are privileged, you know, to be able to worship in the house of God. And yet when he calls us out into the world, when we see all these things, empathize with it. Look beyond ourselves. See those around you. See the ones who suffer, those who are mistreated. See how the misery of wealth exploited and ruined the lives of people. And then the preacher goes on to unpack a little deeper why money and wealth, why the love of money and wealth can bring so much misery if you make it your God, right? First, in verse 10, he reveals the lack of satisfaction that wealth brings. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We all have heard this before. We have heard it a lot of times. The Bible has vehemently warned against 
the usage of wealth, the love of wealth and money. You know, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world, when asked about how much money was enough for him, what was his reply? Just a little more. Just a little more. And we all have to ask ourselves, you know, how much money is, it, is enough for us and our families? Just a little more. But it's not only the rich who are never satisfied because the love of money affects the poor as well. You know, if you make money your God, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You are easily driven to want more. You are easily driven to seek more. Just a little more. Then second in verse 11, the preacher tells us that the more money you have, the more you become a target because more people will come, be coming after you. You know, my kids and I recently have been learning uh, to play some board games and we started playing Monopoly, right? And most of you, I don't have to explain what Monopoly is, most of you know what it is, right? And so one of my sons asked me, as we were playing rounds and rounds and rounds of, of Monopoly, it's like, how do we win? Um, well, I guess the short answer is whoever has the most money will win, right? And so your objective is to beat everyone else, to make sure they go bankrupt, you know, to take all their money away, and then you win. Now, while this may sound trivial, but that's what the reality is right in our world. The more money you have, the more people are going to want to take advantage of you. They're going to come after you. Sometimes your families will want more from you. Or perhaps, you know, nonprofits will reach out to you and put you on their list. Or a salesperson will try to upsell, you know, their luxury item because they know that you have the ability and the money for it. And then third, the preacher tells us the more money you have, the more restless you are. Sleep is the reward of the laborer who has completed or finished his task. But to those who love money, sleep is hard to come by. It's not just physical sleep, but it, the whole idea of rest itself, you know, affects your, your body. It's, it's more holistic in that approach. You are constantly restless. Not only do you lack sleep, but your mind is always thinking, it's always anxious. You are always worried. You are never ever satisfied with what is going on in your life. Hence, the love of money affects you physically, affects how you think, how you live, how you conduct yourselves with, with people, how you rest. So we become insomniacs, you know, and it affects our terrible lifestyle, affects our health. There is no rest to it. And hence, this is all vanity. And the preacher wants us to see the vanity and the futility of what is going on in this world, the brokenness that is affected by our wealth. And then he goes on from then on in a second point where the preacher then wants us to learn to make the most of God's gifts in our world today. You know, so far the preacher painted a, a bleak picture of misery and evil in this world that goes on despite 
despite you know of of the presence of God, yet there is evil still. There is um, brokenness. But at the same time, there is also goodness and joy in this world. Yes, life under the sun has injustices, and it isn't always fair to us. And probably you resonate with this, you know, right now. You know, you feel that perhaps there's a situation in your life where it's unjust, it's unjust to you. It's not fair. And you are trying to find the answers for it, but yet there, there are none. So despite yet of the circumstances that God has put us in, you know, there is still a lot of good in it. You know, money on, on its own, it's a good thing. It is a gift of God. But the sinfulness of men often misuse the gift of God for its advantage, right? And turns it into all kinds of evil. And because money does not fully satisfy, and when you live for it, you bring misery to yourself and to others. And similarly, if we elevate all kinds of other things, our kids, our marriages, our, our marriage, our job, or anything else over God or above God, or putting it in place of God, we also experience the misery of it. But if we understand what the preacher is saying to us that, you know, in, in verse 18, that all these things, they are things that God has given to us and they are gifts to us. They're not meant to be abused. They're meant to be enjoyed. They come from God. All these gifts that God has given to us that we have abused, they're actually gifts of God. You know, God has given them to, to us. He has graciously given them to you and to me. And the hope is that we can learn to enjoy these gifts. There is goodness in this because of God's gifts. Now, when you give a gift, a present to your child, or perhaps, you know, to your spouse or to anyone, what is the hope of us giving this gift? And I hope that, that when we give someone, the hope is that, you know, perhaps when, when I give a, a present to my child, I hope that he does not love the present more than he loves me. That's the hope, right? I'm sure that's the same thing for, for any gift that you give to anyone, that the, the present does not, does not, you know, um, does not replace the love of the giver. The present was meant to enhance our love for the giver, not to replace the giver. And this is God's point to us, too, that when he gives us gifts, he wants us to enjoy. The message of verse 18 to 20 is clear, that you know, he wants us to enjoy his gifts, but to enjoy it appropriately. Now, starting in verse 18, the preacher tells us that it is good and fitting to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Yes, work can be hard. And sometimes it brings a lot of dissatisfaction and burden. Yet you can still enjoy. Find enjoyment in your work. Find enjoyment in the things that you do because the author of life has placed you on this earth and has given you this responsibility. Has called you to manage this task presently. But the key, there's a key here, the key to enjoying God's gift 
comes in verse 19. It says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power or anything else to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. See, God has given you great gifts in wealth and possession and power and everything that you have right now. And he wants you to enjoy it. Yet beneath these gifts, he has given you one more gift so that you can enjoy all these other gifts. And it's in verse 19 here. It's the secret here. One who can accept his lot. What does that mean? It's contentment. The secret to joy, as the preacher tells us, is contentment. Contentment is this gift that God gives to us beyond all these other gifts. Contentment is being able to accept whatever lot, whatever portion God has given to me and be happy with it. You know, see, our hearts will always seek to desire more and more. Our hearts will always seek to elevate God's gifts whatever it may be, wealth, power, love, unless God intervenes in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and produce in us the spirit of contentment. You can never find joy in anything in life, in all the gifts that you have. You can never find joy in any of these things unless you have the gift of contentment. Because you always come up short. You know, all the things that you have, if you do not have contentment, you will always be seeking, always be running after, always come up short. You, you feel like, you know, this is something that you're thriving after. Joy is what you're thriving after, what you're seeking after. But yet, you always come up short because you do not have the spirit of contentment. Now, can you imagine a football player who is always running and running and running but never reaches the end zone. He's constantly running and running. He can run 100 yards. He can run 1,000 yards, but always end up short because that's what enjoying God's gift is like without contentment. You are always running. You're always seeking more and more. You're always searching for the next thing because your heart is not satisfied. And only God can give you this spirit of contentment, as he said in verse 19. You know, the things that he gives, wealth, money, and power. But he also gives one more thing, contentment, so that you would accept your lot, you would enjoy it. So contentment is all we need to enjoy God's gifts, but yet many have failed to discover it. And it's sad. The preacher goes in details to describe what living without contentment looks like, as we see in chapter 6. You know, it's really ugly and sad. Chapter 6 describes a man to whom God has given everything, wealth, possession, honor, family, and long life. But his soul is not satisfied with all the good things from God. He does not get to enjoy it. It was vividly described that he is miserable because God has not given him the spirit of contentment. So he does not enjoy what he has. Instead, it's being enjoyed by others around him. He has everything a man can ask for. One who is seen to have accomplished so much. One who has endless supplies of everything. But deep down, he is a man who feels defeated. One who seems to have nothing, actually. 
And so this is a sad illustration ended with a horrifying conclusion from the preacher. And the preacher says, a stillborn child is better than him. You know, it would have been better to die in the womb than to live a prosperous life without enjoyment. Now, this horrifying description, you know, it seems a bit insensitive, seems a bit, you know, harsh, but it's meant to shock us towards this reality. Because Jesus himself, too, you know, taking on this theme of emptiness, spoke about the emptiness of wealth. You know, he warns the people against the greed of wealth by telling a story in Luke 12 of a rich man who, who said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for your life for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Whose will they be? You will not get to enjoy what is yours and it will be given to others to enjoy is the warning of Jesus to this man. And certainly is a warning to all of us too where we do not, where we receive the gifts of, of God, but yet we do not get to enjoy it. That is what living without contentment looks like. On the contrary, God, the preacher is telling us to enjoy, take hold of these gifts. You know, he wants you to seek after God for this gift. God has given you all gifts. Ask him. Seek him. Look to him for the spirit of contentment. And finally, the preacher goes on to, to end by telling us to strive to live in wisdom. You know, God has shown us the misery that life, life brings, particularly when surrounded ourselves with the love of money, but at the same time, he also reminded us of the grace he provides, that he, despite of the darkness, despite of the evil and brokenness around us, God is still present. There is still goodness. He is still working. He provides. He has provided ample grace for us through his gifts. Things that we have, things that we can ask for, things that we look to him for. And now the preacher brings all of this to a close. He starts by reminding us of this important truth. Now consider the work of God. In chapter 7, here, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? My preacher wants us to pay attention to this truth. Pay attention to who God is. He is the almighty God who's powerful, who's capable of miraculous work. And this is the same God who has been doing this since the beginning of time. And this powerful God, this powerful God, it's also the God who is in control of all things and all situations. Now, chapter 7, verse 14 says, In the days of prosperity, be joyful. In the days of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may find out of anything that will be after him. And so the preacher reveals to us that so much of life can be hard to predict. Yes, there, there's a lot of brokenness in there. There's also a lot of goodness. So there are good days and bad days, right? But yet, sometimes we can't really predict one after the other. Then how, how are we to respond to the unpredictability? 
of life. Perhaps for some people, you know, we seek the life um, of an escapism, right? Someone who just desire to forego, forego everything else in life, escape reality by numbing ourselves to all kinds of pleasures in life so that we don't have to think about the difficult things in life, so that we can just forget about all the bad things and just enjoy. You know, let us amuse ourselves to death by drinking our sorrows away or binge-watching, you know, all the shows after shows, or living however you like. But then there's another option. The other option here is to live with wisdom, learning to live wisely in God's world in the midst of all the unpredictability, in the midst of all the good things and bad things in life. But here's the thing, too. There's a kicker here. Learning to be wise is not simply trying to figure out all the answers. You know, sometimes we think about wisdom, we're thinking about trying to find all the answers, the right answers, find, trying to find all the right ways, troubleshooting your way out of life. But that's not what the preacher is saying. Learning to be wise here is not simply trying to figure out all of life's problem and to find a solution so that you can still be in control of the situation. No. Learning to be wise as we understand what the preacher is trying to tell us with the good days and the bad days. He's telling us to let go of control because you cannot control God's world. Let go of your control because there are good days, there are bad days. You cannot predict anything. So you were called then to let go. Let go of all the control that you can. Let go of, of trying to figure things out, trying to, to uh, manage things. You don't have the knowledge to know everything that God is thinking or how he runs things. So in, in essence here then, living with wisdom, it's basically learning to live with the limitations of wisdom. Trying to understand that, that there's so much in this life where I cannot manage, I cannot control. I don't know what's going to happen the next day. And so I am seizing control. Why? Because God himself is the one who's in control of it. That's why the preacher says, when you experience good days, be thankful for it. Praise God. You know, we don't have to second guess or downplay or even be cynical. Is this, is this really, you know, good? Or maybe, you know, something bad is going to happen after this. You know, when you experience good day, just let go of, of everything else and just enjoy, celebrate it. Praise God. And then in bad days, in days when it's challenging, struggling, you know, while, while it may be challenging and hard, don't run away from it. Let the day sink in. Take some time to process through it. And then remember, remember God and his work. You know, there's a reason why, you know, I read there earlier in the beginning with this truth. In, in chapter 7, you know, who can make straight what God has made crooked? It's, it's an essential truth to understand who has the power to do what only God can do. And so in hard days, remember, remember that we cannot make crooked things straight. Remember that we don't know everything. 
Remember God is in control. Remember God and his word. Remember who he is and what he has done for us and what he can do for us. We cannot know everything. And in some ways, I know perhaps, you know, for, for many of you, we think this is really humbling. This is really humbling. This is humility here. You know, this is something that, that we are not in control, even though we want to be in control. We want to take hold of things. We want to troubleshoot. But yet we are not in control. So this is really humbling. But at the same time, it is also freedom. It's also freeing. Why? Because you don't have to be in control. God is telling us. God is telling us, let me be God and you be who you are my servant as my sons and daughters you don't have to try to figure everything out in your life because I'm still present God is still present God is still at work you know God already knows everything that's happening he sees all things he knows the extent of what goes on in your lives now and also the future and a preacher understood this well he said that he has seen everything the righteous dying early while the wicked prosper. Who can make sense of that? He has no answers for it. Nor does he try to find an answer for it. And he understood that there's no secret formula to life like math, right, where two plus two is four. But that's not how life is sometimes. You know, sometimes when you do something, it does not mean that this is what's going to happen. Sometimes it doesn't go our way. Yet as we look at the unpredictability of life, when we look at everything that is beyond our control, the preacher ends with this, you know, be not overly righteous. Do not, meaning do not try to think that you are right all the time because you are not. And then also do not make yourself too wise because as we said again, you know, we need to understand our limitation even in our wisdom. You know, a good wisdom Living in wisdom is basically learning to live in the limitations of wisdom, learning to know that we don't have all the answers, learning to trust God. And then on the other hand, don't be overly wicked or a fool just because, you know, you don't have all the answers. So don't seek the life of an escapism, of, of escapist who, who just goes on the other end of the extreme where he does not think about any repercussions of life where he just seeks to enjoy life and do and find himself involved in all kinds of debauchery and wickedness. Do not go that direction either. That's not the way the preacher wants us to live. So as we come to this ending, you know, he calls us to see all of these things. He wants us to rest in the knowledge of God. Rest in the knowledge of God because God is the only one who is in control. Rest in Him and fear Him. Eugene Peterson said that a person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. You know, a person who fears God learns to live in the limitation of His wisdom because He knows that He is not God. And friends, this is Perhaps a wake-up call to all of us as we consider, consider our time on this earth. You know, though, though we may not have all the answers in life, 
about the problems of this world. Though our wisdom is limited, yet God's wisdom is not. God has all the answers. God has the final word of our pain and our joy. This is his promise that we can trust. He has the final answer to our pain and joy. And it is his promise to us. How do we know that? Well, because he has already begun fulfilling it through his son Jesus for us. You know, in Jesus Christ, we have someone who came for our sins so that all the pain and sorrows we have in this world, on this earth, as a result of sin, is paid for. Right? And subsequently, sin will be eradicated in his return as he ushers in his kingdom where we will experience ultimate joy. Ultimate joy because sin will be no more. And hence, all injustices, pain, and sorrow will be wiped away. So in Jesus, he holds the balance of, of, of pain and joy together for you. You know, in Jesus, he has started. He started to remove all the pains and sorrows of your life so that ultimately what you have is joy in his presence. But yet in the, in the meantime, right, it's always in the meantime where we are living on this earth. Is this already and not yet? In the meantime, he calls us to live on this earth. You know, the reality and uncertainty of life on this earth does not diminish how we live responsibly as Christians, as followers of God. Remember, Jesus, you know, after he has redeemed us, after he has died for us, in First in Peter, calls us the living stones, not the dead stones. We are the living stones. We are alive. We are not dead, even though we know that death is something that we all have to experience one day. You know, he calls us living stones. You have been given a new life in Christ. Hence, you live even now. Death cannot separate us. Death cannot separate us. The fact that the Bible calls death like falling asleep is to show us that, that Jesus has reigned victorious over death. And so, when death is like falling asleep, believers who have fallen asleep will one day wake up in the presence of his Father in the time to come. And this is Jesus' promise to us. So going back to the beginning, beginning, as we are here worshiping, as we are here seeking the presence of God, finding hope, finding encouragement, finding spiritual awakening in, in our bodies, in, in our hearts, you know, God is calling us as we depart from here to go out into the world, live your life responsibly as, responsibly as his followers. Learn to see the brokenness around you, empathize with it, same time also learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given to you as he has bestowed upon you graciously. Learn to take hold of it. At the same time, if you find yourselves lacking in the ability to enjoy, to find contentment, ask God for it. Ask God to give you this spirit. And at the same time, as we see the good and bad, 
Learn to let go and allow God to be God. Learn to rest in His presence and to know that we don't have to have all the answers in this world because He is God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for for Your truth, Lord, as You remind us of the futility of life in this world, as You remind us of, of just the the unpredictability of life and so many things that is happening in our world. But yet in the midst of all this, you call us to fear you, fear God, honor you, worship you, and to know that you are a God who has made um, crooked things out of something that's straight. You are the one who has the ability to do things, to work beyond our imagination, beyond our abilities. And so I thank you for, for telling us and reminding us that you are God, that you are in control of our lives. You know, that we, even though we live in this life where sometimes it's hard, you know, but yet you are there and you have provided even for us glimpses of your grace, the good things for us. And so we thank you, we praise you as we look to you now even um, in this time of communion and fellowship with you and, and, and coming to you to be fed by you. We thank you for the opportunity not only to be able to hear your word, but also to be able to see this means of grace that you pour out for us to the community.